After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, this is Mind Rolling, and I have a wonderful guest today that I'm meeting for the first time, Lisa Wimberger. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. And we're excited to talk to you, I in particular, and uh, you'll all find out why as we go along here. But I th- one of the first things we always do uh, when we introduce new guests, it's just to find out a little bit about their background, mostly in related to what were the triggers that really led them to the kinds of transformations in their lives that uh, really shares with people uh, the possibilities of uh, being happy, even just basically being happy. And now, of course, I've read uh, a bunch of stuff about you, and I've also looked at some of the work that you've done, and oh boy, you have a story. Wow. <laughs> so you got to share the story, Lisa. So from I, when you were, you know, all the way from when you were a young child. So please do. I know you've told it a million times, but this will be the first time everybody here has heard about it. And mind rolling. You know, when I, I have to laugh because when I tell this story, it doesn't even sound real. And I think, wait, <laughs> is that real? But it's real. Um, Okay, so I I was a child predisposed to the freeze response, which is a normal form of responding to stress, you know, the kind where you get a little frozen, but it was nothing out of the realm of ordinary. And then when I was 15, on my birthday, uh, I and another boy I was with were hit by lightning, and we were with a whole bunch of friends, and we were leaning up against uh, a metal portion of a garage door and a storm came in and the side of the house got hit and it came out the handle and through us through the base of our spines and we were both thrown um like flew through the air probably about three feet and I was in shock he was in shock all of our friends were staring at us they said you were hit you were hit and I didn't buy it I really didn't buy the story. I, I thought he hit me. I was in pain. But how could I possibly have been hit by lightning? I'm conscious. I'm not scorched. Um, but that year, uh, that summer, I started having my blackouts, which uh, first manifested as what I thought were fainting spells. And they would come at random times and I would lose consciousness. What they actually were were tonic seizures. But I did not know that I had a seizure disorder um, probably for about 15 years. I was having these episodes, but often by myself. So when I would recuperate, I couldn't make sense of what was happening. Oftentimes I was in a puddle. Oftentimes I couldn't stand. I couldn't hold my bowels. I had to crawl back to bed or um, hope nobody found me. Sometimes I'd be on the bathroom floor for hours. And I didn't know what was happening. I thought I was fainting and I kept it pretty quiet. Although my parents, I told them this would happen and they thought, you know, we've never seen it. We don't know what this is. And I had no diagnosis until I was 30. 30. Yeah. So for 15 years, I was having these a few times a year. Um, They were getting worse and worse. And then, then I happened to have one in a doctor's office during a routine exam. It was very fortuitous. And I thought I was going to pass out. And when I awoke, 
still have atropine loaded, ready to inject. And that's, you know, basically to start the heart back up again. And he told me that I flatlined and I had a seizure and had this ever happened before. And I said, yeah, this has happened my whole life. And that's where he told me I had a, a seizure disorder that was likely because of my vagus nerve being hypersensitized. Uh, he believed it was possible that the lightning strike did this. I'd mm. never confirmation, but it, it started happening right after the hit. And um, they were getting worse. Meanwhile, I had grown up meditating. So when he told me they were stress and fear induced, I really was confused because I'd grown up meditating. So how much stress could I have? Um, but apparently I had enough predisposition to the freeze response and enough of a sensitized vagus nerve to not be able to process any level really of stress or fear. So this is where I turned to neuroscience so I could discover, okay, what's the missing language between my very rich meditation practice and my physiology? Because there's something missing where stress and fear is, is being overlooked. Can I just ask before you go there, just because I'm not that sure about it myself, what is the freeze response? Because it's so, obviously a condition that's fairly widespread. Yeah, we have three responses to stress in the normal human spectrum. Fight, flee, freeze. Freeze is reptilian, meaning it's our first line of defense. Before we have mobility, before we can hold our heads up, before we can use our limbs, we still have a stress response, and that is freeze. It's paralysis. Mm. Now, it works great for reptiles because what it does is it makes them immobilized and it drops the heart rate so they don't put out heat, right? Oh. Um, in mammals, it's not sustainable. Mammals with large brains that need a lot of oxygen cannot sustain a, a very big freeze response. But it's in the normal range. Then once as we develop, we can hold our head and move our arms and legs, we then usually go to fight or flee which is a mammalian response to stress. And we can dip into all of these. So for instance, if you're in a scary movie and you go, oh, that's the freeze response in a normal spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, but what's not normal, <laughs> what's not normal is for it to actually cause full, full immobility. Um, that's outside of a really sustainable response and that taxes the resources of the brain where we're starving the brain now of oxygen and, and it's very difficult to recover from those things but animals do this in the wild all the time they play dead during crisis this is the same response yeah. um so we all have it mm. but some of us choose or predisposed to one over the other. Right. And and the other thing, again, before we, we get into uh, the neurosculpting, uh, neuroscience, what about how you say I was a longtime meditator. Just tell us a bit about how did that take place in terms of what were your influences? How did you turn to meditate? Obviously, when you were quite young, you, yeah. you're saying. Um, I was always fascinated with that which I could not explain. I always felt very intuitive as a child, but when I was 12, things really got set in motion. My brother had taken a course in college, a self-hypnosis course, and he came home and he shared the practice with me. And at 12, for some reason, it just made sense. It made perfect sense. And I latched onto that self-hypnosis practice and I became a very devoted meditator. I would say you know, first in the form of self-hypnosis. I was doing it every day, twice a day. I was keeping a journal. I was using it to How old? escape, cope. I was 12. Um, but I was, I was very introverted. So it was a very comfortable place for me to go. And then I, you know, I had a very robust practice. By the time I was even 15, I, I had a regular practice. And then I got hold of some Michael Harner shamanic drumming journeys. And I started doing that on my own. And I sort of studied and read up on my own, but all the while still did this. And then in my late teens, early twenties, I found the Ishaya monks, which interestingly have uh, a campus 
in Asheville or had one. Really? Who yeah, are I they? I don't, I've never heard of them. I don't know if they're still there. This was back in the early 90s. And they were teaching TM, a, a hybrid form of TM. So I studied with them for about four years where uh, at the time I was living on the East Coast. So they would come to Long Island and Brooklyn and we would do workshops there. And so I did a lot of TM with them. And then I got trained for four years with the Berkeley Psychic Curriculum at a sister school in Denver. So I had, you know, at least nine years of formal training interspersed with the, you know, decades of personal practice. So TM and self-hypnosis and autogenics are, are really kind of my doorway into mm. meditation. You weren't the normal young lady. Were you now? I, I guess not. And you know what? Um, it felt normal to me. But then when I see how most of my friends grew up, no, it, it was not the standard. <laughs> yeah. Interesting karma, especially with uh, related to what happened to you at 15 with that lightning strike, related to the freeze, related to the freeze yeah. response, and also, of course, related to the um, what was happening to you internally which was got to have been a very tumultuous kind of experience of what am i doing what's going on in my life at this point it was very tumultuous and and i do think from a very high level spiritual perspective it was all divinely orchestrated i mean if i didn't have meditation techniques I don't think I would have recuperated from those episodes of, of seizures well at all. In fact, I might have gone in such a different direction with um, my own personal beliefs and stories about myself. So I feel like uh, some greater force gave me the foundation I needed to deal with the trauma I was going to experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then tell us, you did some investigation at, at the point at which you had that experience in the doctor's office, and that led you onto uh, a path which you're sharing today with many people. So tell us about that. Yes. So it led me to, to inquire about why my meditation practice, which was decades old at this point, was not um, curing my stress response, because that's what I thought was supposed to happen with meditation. So for that, I went to science, which um, much to my father's joy and jubilation, I went to science for answers because mm -hmm. I, I think he never quite understood why I was so spiritually oriented and not fact-based. Um, I grew up very pragmatic in a pragmatic environment. So lo and behold, all things come full circle and I go to science and I say, I need to understand what my vagus nerve is doing. It's cranial nerve number 10. That's what the doctor told me. So let me go figure out what makes this nerve do what it does. Why is it um, short wiring when I get stressed? What is the relationship between my perception of the world and this physiological response? So I started studying the vagus nerve and this condition of heightened freeze response, which then snowballed into light bulbs going off in my field around, this is why you do this, Lisa. This is why you have this uh, issue, or this is how you can help yourself. It started moving me out of victim mode. Mm. Science moved me out of victim mode. It moved me out of wishing and hoping which I still love to do. I love to wish and hope, but it moved me out of that and into strategy and application to make those wishes and hopes a reality. And so it, it empowered me. And then I became obsessed with learning about the brain and perception and its neurological choreography and how that then controlled our nervous system. And what I ended up doing was, um, taking my meditation form and choreographing it strategically with very um, practical steps. First, I do this with my thoughts so that this part of my brain will calm down. Then I do this with my thoughts so that there was an if-then quality 
for each step that I used science to frame so that I could thought and train differently. And then once I had a framework that I thought might go into my um, story, go underneath my subconscious story about why I might be so scared and freezing all the time, I played with this structure and I used it to create a brain environment where I rehearsed a new response. So I actually did mental entrainment rehearsals for about a year. Now, this is something that you you personally developed. This wasn't something you you actually went in. I mean, you you have you're not a neuroscientist. You no. you've never been trained in that way, but you went in strictly because you had this issue and you were going to find out how in the world you could transform it. Yes. And the reason the fire lit for me to do this was because the seizures were getting worse. Um, And when I say worse, um, the last seizure I had, I could not breathe on my own even after they started me breathing again. And and there was a voice. My husband was pushing on my chest. I I couldn't get up. He found me frozen in the corner in the kitchen. He found me in full paralysis. My eyes were wide. My mouth was open. He said I was blue and I was staring out into space. And I was very rigid. And he got me breathing again, but I couldn't maintain that. And that Mm. was the first time I could not breathe on my own after a seizure. Mm. And I heard the voice in my head say, Lisa, it's so easy not to breathe. Don't, Don't even bother. The whole time he's telling me to breathe, I'm thinking, are you, why, why bother? I just have to come back into this little body here. And when your heart is stopped and it starts again, you get that pins and needles feeling like when your foot's asleep, Mm. but you have it throughout your whole body head to toe as the blood starts to rush again. And it's excruciating. You can't escape it. It's kind of like, um, Tina Turner in, in Tommy, where she's in that, that mummified sarcophagus, I guess it is, and it opens and it's all the needles. It's, that's the mm. feeling. Um, and I didn't want to come back from that. And I remembered, okay, well, I have a husband, daughter, I need to come back. So once he got me breathing again, I said, if this ever happens to me again, I'm gone. So I have to figure this out. And that's last seizure was what lit the fire. So that's when I started mental rehearsal scripts in a very neuroplastically enhanced brain environment. And I had to figure out how to do that to my brain. And those rehearsal scripts were me rehearsing the moment that seizure halo would hit me. You've got a second, maybe. I would rehearse evoking that feeling and then fighting instead of freezing. I would rehearse punching, kicking, screaming. And I rehearsed this so much in my mind that I entrained to it. And a year later, when a, a halo came in real time, I thought I was going to seize. And all of a sudden, I found myself punching the dashboard and the, the window in the car and screaming like a banshee. And before I knew it, I was completely unhinged and explosive, but I did not seize. And even though it was an ugly response to the halo, it was the first time I ever had a different response since I was 15 and I didn't lose consciousness and I didn't seize. And I shook for about 12 hours, shaking and chattering like I was freezing. And my husband put me to bed. And I woke and the next day I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with them. And so I had two more halos come that year and I didn't even have to go to that fighting response. They just, the halo just sort of dissipated and disappeared. Just with your intention? Just with the fact that I had created such a new script that I engaged with that I no longer accessed the seize script, the freeze script. And I haven't had one since, and it's been almost a decade. Wow. That's amazing. So that's when I took that architecture I was building on how to get my brain to believe that rehearsal script, and I articulated it into five steps and started a private 
practice where I was sharing this with those in trauma, first responders, in police agencies, because I, I teach officers, and a private practice where I had people starting to come with super high levels of trauma, trying to learn how to meditate because everything else they were doing was kind of plateauing. Mm. And um, let's talk about the script, though. What what do we detailed? What are we talking about when you are saying that you rescripted your mind? Right. What What do we mean? So we have conscious scripts or beliefs or perceptions, and we have subconscious ones. One uh, conscious one is, um, I am an empowered woman. One subconscious one might be, um, you know, I'm fragile or weak or I'm fat or I'm thin or I'm unlucky or I'm lucky or I'm loved or unloved. These are scripts. And when I, I call them scripts because they may have been true in a moment once, or at least we might have perceived they were true once. And because that experience was so emotionally charged, we took that set of factors, criteria that made up that perception, and we stored that as a memory of now who we are. That's what I call a script. So now when we're in similar situations, I reference that belief because referencing it will help me navigate it now. It's efficient. We create beliefs about ourselves, mostly because the brain is looking for the most efficient way to navigate the world. And if this is so intense in this moment, then this must be the template I use for the next moment that might be that intense. Mm. So these are scripts and we have them consciously, but most of them are subconscious. The, the beliefs we grew up with, the environment we grew up in and what it made us perceive about the world. And if you read the work of Dr. Jill Bolte Taylor, whose left hemisphere was annihilated in a stroke, she talks about when her left hemisphere came back online, things she thought were inherent personality traits were now choices. Mm. So we have these beliefs or scripts or patterns that are designed to help us navigate efficiently without having to figure it out all over again in the next moment. But so many of these are underneath our consciousness and they're not true. And the ones that are really limiting and causing a contracting response don't need to be there anymore. And we can use neuroplasticity to go in at the subconscious level and start to sculpt a new choreography, either uncouple from the old contraction that that story evokes or couple our experience to a new story that we can even make up. And if we do this enough, what we're doing is we're exercising choreography at a neurological level and we can change how our physiology responds. If, if, if you look at multiple personality disorders, some of those have measurably different physiologies. There are cases with multiple personality disorders where one disorder has a prescription for eyeglasses, literally a measurable prescription and the other personality doesn't. One personality can be allergic to bees mm -hmm. while the other personality isn't. These are structural neurological scripts underlying an entire way of being in the world, and they are malleable. Right. How about giving a, a, a practical example? Just talk about, I mean, let's something simple around somebody with anxiety. And, uh, you know, it can be some of the most simple things, can be heights, can be whatever, elevators that causes people to have anxiety responses right? and freeze responses. Yeah. What, what would be a script that one would create and how would you implement that script on a day-to-day -day practical level? So when people come with those heightened states of, um, of that kind of thing, the first script we work on is the script that couples a contracted response with the thought they're having. So they have this thought of, oh my God, I have to get into the elevator. And now they start to hyperventilate and now they start to contract in their gut or they start to sweat or they start to shake. That is a physiological response coupled with a perception. So in those cases, we go into a meditative state 
We follow the five steps because those five steps that we do in neurosculpting help the brain keep stress at bay while we're sculpting. So what we do is we evoke the concept of the elevator. And we do this in a way that is engaging both their left brain language centers and their right brain language centers. So when I ask them to think of an elevator, I'm going to spell the word elevator. I'm going to, I'm going to ask them to list a number of descriptions in their mind for elevator. I'm getting their left brain language centers very involved in this semantic concrete analysis. And then I'm going to ask them to take that elevator idea and those words. And if that elevator could be a texture, a color, a sound, uh, a smell, what would that be? And now I'm helping them give symbology to what is semantic. So really what I'm doing with that is I'm helping them cross the midline of their brain. So we're engaging both sides of the brain in, in this evocation. And so they bring up the concept of elevator, both semantically and symbolically. And then I ask them to do a body scan. Where is that color or texture in your body? Is it flowing through you? Is it congealed in your chest? Are you contracted here? We have them go to the body because the body is the barometer. And they'll tell me it's tight in my chest. Okay. What color could you flood into your chest that might neutralize that other color? Or what imagery can you put in your chest that might soften or deepen your breath? We give them lots of opportunities to change their physiological response while holding the perception of elevator in their mind. So what we're doing is we're unchoreographing strategically the body response that perception evoked. And we're doing that by holding it symbolically and semantically in front of us and readjusting our body. So what we're doing is we're taking that moment of readjustment now, and I'm going to ask them, okay, even if you've readjusted the smallest little bit, that's more than before. How do you want to remember this moment? I'll have them put their non-dominant hand on that part of their body, or I'll have them make a hand gesture, or I'll have them Think of a name they want to associate or a word they want to associate with this moment. I want to give them a go-to reminder of this brand new perception, which is elevators here and I'm breathing just a little deeper than I thought I could. Hmm. And so once we establish these mechanisms, then we give them practices in your day-to-day. -day. Put your hand here when you feel when you feel fine, not when you're stressed, but when you feel fine. Reminisce about your meditation. Reminisce about that new choreography you have. And do this repeatedly so that by the time you get to your meditation the next day, you've actually brought it to the forefront of your mind 50 times. This is entrainment. This is rehearsal. So we give them ways to tap into their content, even if they can't meditate, so that they're doing something as a um, positive reinforcement for that new story all the time. And that's how we uncouple. Now, if we want to entrain to something brand new, I might want to entrain to a brand new belief, a belief that I'm loved. Okay, let's take the concept of love semantically, literally. Let's take a symbol of love that works for you in this moment. And let's, let's look at where can you breathe deeper and imagine this symbology in your body? Can you entrain your body to a construct that even may not have been something you've ever experienced before? But yes, you can. You can craft this and couple it together just as you can unchoreograph. This is Hebb's law of neuroplasticity. This is how cognitive behavioral therapy works. You train a dog to salivate at the sound of a bell the same way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of a harder case. Hey. Okay. I may not be able to solve it. Oh, come on. Please. Okay, we'll see. So, I went to India, and I mentioned to you that I work with Ramdas. Mm -hmm. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that. And I followed him to India when he went the second time. And I, his guru is my guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And so 
decades and and I mean, it couldn't have been more fortunate, if we want to use that word, uh, in in my life, in terms of transformation. It's been decades and decades of work since that time, continual. And still, that little anger thing that I got into habitual pattern with through my family and circumstances and whatever they may have been that is still with me and is something that i am i deal with way better than uh, i have ever was able to do it you know previously but it's it's still there and i still wonder gee that habitual tendency is still a little bit of a monkey on the you know it's still still grinding Okay, so give me a little bit of suggestion here about reprogramming and uh, re-scripting when that comes up. Well, the first thing I would say is the fact that you're even navigating it differently now than you did 10 years ago means you are sculpting it. Hmm. And we may never be done sculpting. Oh, you know, God. I, that's the truth. <laughs> we may never be done sculpting. It's, <laughs> the sculpting is the process of changing our relationship to those things. And you are changing your relationship to it. Your goal, however, is different because your goal is to get rid of it. So there might be more sculpting to do. And in a case like that, I might have you imagine in a very autogenic hypnotherapy sort of way, even though I'm not a hypnotherapist, I've just been trained in it. Um, I might have you go to a real or an imaginary moment in time where you first experienced that. And I might have you do the uncoupling from that moment, mm. not you in present time today, but you then I might have you do a series of entrainment exercises where you are not only uncoupling from that moment in time, but you are in your mind creating, um, the gifts to the boy that engaged in that response for right or wrong reasons as self-preservation. I might have you do a bunch of entrainment exercises that cultivate a whole anthology of stories that say, it was okay. I forgive. I gave you what I needed. I thank you for it. And I'm uncoupling from the contraction. So it might be a whole series of stories that you practice, but in a case where you're so evolved already in your practice, it might be something where, where you are evolved enough to go to that moment in time and, 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 uh, go to that very first story. And that's not to say it will work, but the sculpt, the sculpting may never be done. Mm. It's true. <laughs> that I know. Okay, when are your office hours, Lisa? I'll, ah! I'll be out there next week. Yeah, you can call me. We can do Skype. <laughs> oh, we can. Okay, everybody listen to that out there, and we're going to give Lisa's information uh, before we get off the air, and uh, you certainly can be in touch with her, I'm sure. Uh, this is really wonderful stuff. I mean, one of the things that... Uh, especially people like me who have a long history with incredible teachers and, and someone like this being who was just living unconditional love and we experience that with him. There's a way at times that we have avoided being, talk about being here now, being, dealing with this stuff. And I, I remember, you know, when I was much younger, it was like, I don't have to deal with any of it. Happened my my first marriage. Uh, I mean, I would, I was above dealing with my stuff. Right. Okay, because I could get so high, and I right. could. And I think there's many of us from from. I th I don't think it's from that era particularly. I think that is a pattern that people who spirit quote unquote people who get on the spiritual path and start to have experientially get themselves into places at times where they really do go beyond the temporal, that they stop any kind of engagement with 
the practical aspects of dealing with their ego personalities, neurosis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, now, you know, I've heard uh, Ramdas talks about this because people say, "Well, what about should I go to a therapist to deal with this?" And he'll say, well, "It depends on the therapist. If they <laughs> believe in this stuff, they're just going to pass that on to you. If if they're caught, you're going to be more caught." And so it's you know that's always the case. But I have uh, just in in terms of advising people myself, I think that is that was why I uh, got in touch with you because I really uh, I just really vibed with the way that you were presenting this work and dealing with this stuff that we all. I mean, it doesn't have to be this extraordinarily dramatic episode that you had. It can be just being, you know, I get anxiety when I get stuck in an elevator. It can right. be just small things, but they're really important. Right. I want to I want to add to that because you just said it so eloquently. Um, I am a master dissociator. <laughs> Masterful, which is. This is not to say all meditators do this, but this is certainly what I did. I used meditation to run very quickly from everything out here that got me. And that had, that had become my new age disorder is what I call it. And, and although in those moments of meditation, I was finding bliss and joy, I didn't know how to come back. I didn't know how to manifest it through my day to day or my body. So I was actually in training to the need to escape in order to have bliss, yeah. <laughs> which is also a disease. And I went, oh, my oh, God, but that's so great. So um, it wasn't. And, and as a freeze person, that is the ultimate form of dissociation. Mm. You actually leave your body. Literally, mm. body just stops. So I had to learn how to make this container a noble practice as noble as spiritual pursuit was for me and as noble as it was to go into non-ego I chose a body and I have to figure out how to bring that all into the body and I can't ignore the body in Mm. order to do that yes I got my wake-up call and realized that I had spent years you know running away from my stuff and looking at it is not graceful all the time and it's not beautiful and blissful and it doesn't smell like sandalwood or feel like flowing robes or <laughs> feel like wind blowing through your hair. Sometimes it feels like I'm losing my mind, I'm crying hysterically and I want to punch you and I need to process this and move through mm. it so that I don't get hijacked by it. Yeah. And so um, I had to learn the hard way to stop dissociating and and I needed science to do that yeah um you wrote an article new age disorder a scourge among us i did and i just i have to i mean you've you've sort of encapsulated already but i have to read something you wrote you know why because i don't know how many times i have said the same thing in many different ways and i've gotten people angry at me so i need all of the uh, support of like-minded people i was taught deferral and denial in all of my meditation practices don't get me wrong meditation is my lifeline when it allows me to experience my full spectrum and do service in the world through real processing of these emotions it is my scourge scourge When it's used to disassociate from real emotion, numb it, or pretend it doesn't exist with a polite smile through gritted teeth or a vapid use of namaste or God bless you. I don't know how many times I said, oh, yeah, give me one more namaste and I'm going to punch you. Exactly. You know, there's there's an expression in the South called bless his heart. Yeah. really means, you know, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that is so great. Um, oh, uh, one thing, uh, a couple of other things just to add on. Just talk about body tapping a, a, a little bit. I think that's um, something people can really use. I think it's probably a practice that you can give. Yeah, you know, there is a form of body tapping that has a structure to which I am not trained in, so it's not that. We're not talking EFT. We're talking um, 
we link our sensory perception to our thought constructs in all moments. You know that smell you can smell that reminds you of that time when you were five or that song you hear on the radio that flashes you back to your prom? Okay, these are, these are sensory stimuli linked to perception. So what we do in neurosculpting is we craft a perception that works better for us, whether it's to downregulate from contraction or to entrain to something expansive. We're crafting a perception. And in that moment, we want to create a sensory link. And for us, the easiest thing to do is tap because tomorrow I always have my hand and my body with me so I can tap again tomorrow and evoke a a gentle memory of that. But if you prefer oils or incense, you could put an essential oil on your wrist and at key moments of perception in your meditation that work really well for you, you can sniff that scent and start linking the scent to the perception. Mm. But tapping really works because it's always with you, but also when you get a, a somatic motion involved, you're using a totally different part of your brain, which actually enhances the investment that your neurology makes in this. So that's how we use tapping. Right. Wonderful. Um, And um, you also talk about protecting oneself from contagious behavior. And um, I think that's uh, quite important because as we are out in the world with many people, it... uh, it can be just being cut off and someone yelling at you and you getting, you know, back at them. And, uh, that is probably, I mean, we can take this further and further into our worlds, into our social structure, into our political structure and so on. And the fact that we take on this contagious behavior so much and causes so much polarization of ourselves, our lives and so on, Talk about that just a little bit in terms of of countering it. Well, you know, anytime you're around another human being, you are vicariously on some level experiencing what they experience. We know that now to be true through the discovery of the mirror, mirror neuron networks. We don't quite know exactly how they work, but we do know that if I see a genuine smile, the same neural network that would light up when I smile lights up when I witness you smile. Not to 100% as though I were smiling, but in some cases, 80% firing, which can then tell my neurology, I smiled. This is what mirroring each other literally does in the brain. So so this happens with a frown. This happens very easily with body um, posture and facial expressions. So we are forever picking up other people's stuff as though it's our experience of the world. And it's really important to navigate our own stuff without all the clutter of it, to create processes to quickly downregulate from any um, charge that, I, like, I might not even know why I'm cranky all day, but I'm going to do a neurosculpting meditation to identify it semantically, symbolize it, find it in my body, uncouple from it, and what might happen is I might get the information that that wasn't even mine. I might not. But the practice of uncoupling from vicarious, unnameable stuff is critical in us recalibrating enough so that we can see our own stories and have enough space and neutrality in our neurology to then go deal with our own difficult Mm. stories. If I'm so busy navigating everyone else's stuff, especially caregivers or therapists or people who are just picking up other people's vicarious trauma, I'm not going to have time to deal with mine. So the practice of down-regulating from that each and every day, just as a, as a maintenance, can really give you space to go deal with the underlying stuff that's been, you know, kind of poking you for years. Mm, really? Good stuff, Lisa. Really great. Uh, I just have one last thing, and it's not even—it's not a question. It's—it's it's more of a conversational thing. You talked about how you could look back at your early life and your life in general, and look back at the events that happened. They all led you to this path that took you to work with quote unquote science. 
to actually find a way to transform these very, very dramatic issues. And, uh, and so you can see a pattern of, gee, this, this all fits together. We all can if we look at our lives. I mean, myself, I mean, I was really an unhappy kid and acting out miserable stuff until the, the light dawned through the various uh, things that happened to me, uh, Eastern, mostly around Eastern uh, thought and spirituality. And music, that was a big thing for me that, that got me out of my day-to-day. And so, but you look back on this and you see that pattern and you see science really was a great, way in which you found that transformation, as we said? Do you also see something unnameable, whatever we want to call it, obviously, behind this whole thing that's led you to this? I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a bit of a a naive question, but. No, I'm just going to say amen to that question. Um, Absolutely. You know, if I were a scientist, I would have had to go to meditation to be whole. Hmm. As a meditator, so I had to go to science to be whole. It's not about one over the other. It was about how do I get the very fragmented parts of my human experience to partner? And I believe 1,000% there was a greater force informing all of it. Um, if I thought I had to do this really by myself, mm. I don't think I would do this. Um, but I don't think I'm doing it by myself. I think I'm being informed by the field outside of myself, which affects me as much as my words affect the ears of someone who hears my words. So I've been very spiritual my whole life, relying, relying on that. Mm. Um, and, and I think the transmission or whatever you want to say, the transmission for me in this lifetime is that we have fragmented so much. We have science pitted against uh, mystics. We've got religion pitted against politics. We've got, we've got these us and thems from our internal stories, even to our preferences. I mean, I have people who get really proud that they're scientific and empirically based. And I have other people super proud that they're not that and they're artists and we're both those things and can, and can be in each and every moment. We have a semantic nature and we have a, a, a figurative nature in each and every moment. So bringing in the acceptance of our fragmented selves um, creates inclusion and expansion and not contraction and not us and them. And I don't think I would have trusted that that was even safe if I didn't believe in a higher force. Mm. Yeah. It's all about love or else this wouldn't be happening and you wouldn't be sharing this. That's the only way I can see it. It's uh, beautiful work. And um, tell us about, uh, uh, first of all, the name of the book that you have written that that, uh, gives people a real um, relationship with this work in detail. Yeah. So there are two books. The first book is New Beliefs, New Brain. And that is pretty dry. It's a how-to. It's the why and the how behind this process. And it's some written meditations. And then this second book, which is called Neurosculpting, really dives into a lot more of the meditational experiences I had. And then what that led me to go discover in neuroscience. There's a lot more neuroscientific um, references and studies in that book. There's discussion of food and how food supports what the spirit wants to do Mm. in the body with what the neurology is doing. Um, That one is a very comprehensive workbook because all throughout it, it has exercises for you to do to embody Mm. this. And then we have the Institute, the Neurosculpting Institute. So what's the website for that? So That is uh, neurosculptinginstitute.com. Okay. And we, through that website, you could learn a lot about this process we have a learning store with audio downloads and Mm. free stuff oh great library with neuroscience articles we live stream a bunch of our classes Mm. we have online immersions 
We have all of the audio products through Sounds True, which are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and Audible. And it's very accessible. Mm. Or that website has so much information that you really need to dig through it and spend some time on it. And there's really no lack of product or opportunity for, for people to learn mm. about this. All of this, of course, everybody, will be available on Mind Rolling page. We're going to put all of the links for Lisa's books and the link to uh, neurosculptinginstitute.com. I suppose they also can reach you if they uh, through through that website. So, Absolutely. Yeah. You can email us at um, info at neurosculptinginstitute.com. Okay, perfect. And... Uh, Boy, I thank you for this. And by the way, I'm remembering also when, when you talked about how these things coming together, science and um, and mysticism, uh, who is doing more at that than His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, who has really been working so hard. I, I actually was at some talks uh, he gave at Emory in Atlanta uh, a couple of years ago, and he, he brought up Richie Davidson and some of these yes. other people. I'm a big fan of both the Dalai Lama and yeah. Richard Davidson. Yeah, so uh, this is beautiful work, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy we got to talk to you and, and share it with everybody here on Mind Rolling. So, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. It was a pleasure. It's wonderful. So everybody will, uh, will as I said, Lisa Wimberger, and you will be able to uh, access everything she does. In fact, you can go to our Mind Rolling Amazon uh, link and buy all of this stuff and then Mind Rolling gets a little piece of it as an affiliate. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you.